This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Rob Connybeer, who is the founder of Shasta Ventures. And uh, Rob's one of these uh, icons in the hardware startup landscape. He's been a critical first investor in Nest, which I think was one of the first you know, hardware startups that really hit it big from the current generation. Uh, and now he's in companies like Fetch Robotics and Turo, which used to be called Relay Rides. So welcome, Rob. Thanks for, yeah, for joining us. Yeah, pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So... Yeah, so I've been investing in hardware for quite some time. I'm, I'm one of three founders at Shasta. It was myself, Todd Francis, Ravi Mohan. We came together back in 2004. And early on, I spent a lot of time looking at infrastructure technologies. And that really evolved more into consumer-facing businesses, consumer-facing hardware opportunities, Nest being one of those early opportunities. I led our Series A investment in the company back when it was 10 people in a garage. And so at the time, were you thinking to yourself, oh, this is the, you know, the, the peace dividend of the smartphone war, components are coming down, connectivity, like the, was it all flowing together as a, as a sensible kind of theory or, or did Nest just come to you with a, a compelling What, what, what made the case for you for Nest? Yeah. Well, with Nest in particular, it was two things. One is the team was amazing. You had Tony Fidel and Matt Rogers who had worked closely together on multiple generations of the iPod going back all the way to the beginning. And they had some really interesting ideas for how they could leverage these new technologies, this peace dividend that you're referring to, and put them together in a highly integrated way to create a thermostat that could program itself. That was the original idea. And they definitely liked the idea of having a round, iconic design that really harkened back to the early days of what Honeywell had done with the Honeywell round, which was also a very iconic design. So for us, that's what was appealing about it. And it was also clear at the time that there was a new category of products that was coming along that would be connected to the internet. And by being connected to the internet, could improve over time. So you could actually start to do over-the-air software updates, and you could deliver better algorithms. Or if you figured out how to make the display or the UI better, that you could actually push these things out mm -hmm. there. And in fact, anybody that's had a Nest or has a Nest in their house sees that it updates itself in about a monthly basis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, it, and it, uh, it was one of the first really big consumer products to come out this way, right? When they did the early teardowns, um, even bef well before there was a Nest Protect or other you know, concepts for a Nest ecosystem, people started to notice that it has a, a mesh network radio, right? Which right. Uh, wasn't related to any of the initial functionality. Yeah, and it, and it was interesting because it was the first in a lot of ways of kind of these modern connected hardware startups where you design the hardware with future upgrades in mind. Mm -hmm. So when it was designed and launched, they knew that they'd be making software updates along the way. And it was also clear that there would be other devices that would start to be in the house that could maybe communicate with it. So they put a number of different radios and chips and protocols in it to be able to communicate with other devices down the road. It was part of the original plan. 
And I think when you look at a lot of hardware startups today, the more forward-thinking ones think about this type of thing. How do I build hardware that supports the software upgrades that I think I'd like to do over the next two, three, four, five years down the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also like which, which features should, be, should go into hardware and which features should go into software implementation-wise, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's a funny trade-off because there's a lot of things you could do to optimize what goes into hardware, what goes into software. Obviously with the hardware, you're thinking about performance and the bill of materials. How do you make that inexpensive? And at some point you have to just say, I'm going to stop thinking about it because you have to ship Mm -hmm. the hardware. Mm -hmm. Like you actually have to ship the hardware. And inevitably you don't get that trade-off exactly right. Yeah, You just have to get within where you think you're 10 to 20% of where you need to be. And then you have to live with it down the road. And then the way you live with it down the road with these companies is you scratch your head and you're like, oh, I put more into the bill of materials than I thought I had to. I made it more expensive than it needed to be. Mm -hmm. Often it goes the other way, which is you have these great ideas for the software you want to run on it, but the hardware can't support it for one reason or another. And then Mm -hmm. you end up spinning another version of the hardware anyways. You curse yourself for for saving that $2 when you decided to go for something slightly less powerful. Yeah. And at the same time, there are plenty of situations where you did put in enough horsepower and Mm -hmm. the software can be particularly interesting. So with Nest, one of the things that they had in mind down the road was to be able to do demand response. Mm -hmm. So the idea that the utility could manage which people would use less air conditioning on hot days and being able to push out into the houses, hey, let's go ahead and pre-cool a series of houses where people have either gotten rebates or we've paid them in some manner to actually allow us to override their, their heating and cooling a little bit. It's a much more interesting proposition. So it was those types of things that it was able to support very well. Yeah. I imagine that there's a lot of bomb pressure when the only way that you can justify your company or your product is, look, we're going to put this on the shelf at Home Depot and people will pay this amount of money and it's three times the bomb cost and, it's, and that's an okay margin, right? You need to, but to get kind of the, um, the breathing room to put in really good hardware and to plan over the long term, you have to convince your investors that you're developing a, uh, a really bold ecosystem, right? Well, I think with, I mean, there's this question, right? It's, it's why would somebody pay a lot more for a new piece of hardware? Mm-hmm. They haven't had it before. Mm-hmm. Like in the case of Nest, you had a thermostat that would cost, say, three or four times as much as what you could buy off the shelf that in theory did a lot of the same things, but had really terrible, crappy UI and user experience. We're investors in Eero, for example. And if you take a look at Eero, Eero is very high performance Wi-Fi for consumers, mm-hmm. very user friendly. You control it with an app that runs on your smartphone and communicates via Bluetooth with the Wi-Fi nodes. It's a gateway and router that you... It's a gateway and router, Mm -hmm. and it comes out of the box as a mesh network. Hmm. So you don't buy just one, you buy a Mm three-pack, and then you put them around your house. Now, the three-pack is certainly higher than what you would pay for a Linksys router, but it gives you amazing performance. Mm -hmm. It gives Mm -hmm. you fantastic out-of-the-box, whole-home no dead spot performance. And in fact, if the three pack doesn't do it, you can buy another one and move it to four. But I think for a lot of these things, at the end of the day, you need to go for that premium price point initially so that you can have something that's really differentiated in the consumer's mind and is worth mm-hmm. the extra money. So instead of saying, hey, I want to be, you know, I might be 10% more of the same price and I'm using new technology to really break through and, and be able to deliver that, that wow experience mm-hmm. for a lot of the new connected hardware companies, it means you're coming in at a premium price point. 
Sonos yeah. was the same way. That's the Tesla, the Tesla model, right? I like, think that's I mean, a that's a very analogous cause, example. Because I remember I was reading an article about how they wanted to do all the stuff with electric cars and everything, but the tech's so expensive because the volumes are not there, and so they decided to have the plan be release the first product, be aimed as you know marketed as a very fancy, high-end, super-duper high-tech car that enthusiasts are willing to pay a lot of money but for. But then it becomes compelling, right? And then it becomes mm-hmm. compelling. It's a legendary car. And then also that, you yeah. sell more of them and figure out how to work out the manufacturing process and work out the details of the tech and then start moving into like more. So, so what I find fascinating about this, you, you, you take a look at the Tesla price point, the Nest price point, the Sonos price point, we're just talking about Eero, et cetera, is the combination of the tech and the user experience together with just really thinking about consumer psychology and mm-hmm. what does it mean. And often when people are buying these things and they're early adopters, they want the best. They want something that really breaks through. So when you're designing it and you're thinking about it, you're not just thinking about how do I make the product better? It's what is it that makes this particularly appealing to a consumer that they want to take a chance on a new company, an untested brand. And, and oddly, it may be about spending more money to make sure you have something that you're offering it is far more compelling than what the alternatives are today. Yeah, and so the Nest is a spectacular piece of hardware that's like uh, well designed. I mean, it it is the it is the first incursion of kind of the Apple design philosophy into that aspect of your home, right? But but what they could have done, they could have gone another way, and they could have built a thermostat that would have cost on the shelf hundred dollars or one hundred and twenty five, and then instead of having technology capabilities that were maybe only a generation ahead of Honeywell. Mm -hmm. They had technology capabilities that were two or three generations of Honeywell. So it allowed them to really leapfrog in the consumer's mind that differentiation that you would have. And people are willing to spend the money when there's something that's that's really revolutionary. And I think people see that with many other products. It's not just Nest, but it's whether you're talking about Tesla or you're talking about Sonos, or you're talking about now Eero and mm-hmm. other products that are coming along. How about a good uh, a good counterexample? I think would be the uh, the Motorola Rocker. Remember that it was the the first iTunes enabled phone, and you could connect your iTunes to it and listen to MP3s from your mobile phone. And yeah, there was, all there hundred was, songs. Yeah, there was yeah, all yeah, hundred there, there was songs. Rumor, artificially limited. There was this big yeah. rumor that Apple was working on a you know, a mobile phone that you could connect to your iTunes and listen to iTunes from it. It was going to be a huge deal and be amazing and blah, 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 and everything. Steve Jobs gets up on the stage and shows off the Motorola rocker and everyone's like, oh, sweet. It's like a Motorola candy bar phone that you can now listen to B3s on. And it costs about the same amount of money as mm-hmm. as a standard mobile phone. Okay, that's kind of cool. But then compare that to super premium iPhone, which came out a few years later where they just really went for it and really, you know, if we're going to add value, we're going to add some freaking yeah. value. And it changes the whole segment that it's in. They, they, they wiped segment. out a whole yeah, segment. Wiped, wiped out everything. Yeah. No one, no one bought an Arcos, you know, video MP3 player after yeah. that came out. So what do you think are really interesting areas these days where there's, you know, where you see an opportunity to, um, to go two steps or three steps ahead of the existing technology? Well, I think there are a few areas that are moving really fast. One that is particularly compelling is virtual reality. Hmm. And what I find so interesting about virtual reality from a consumer point of view is the world is really separated in people that have tried the new technology and those that haven't. And for people that have tried it, they find it a very compelling experience if you've tried a current generation state-of-the-art headset. And then when you overlay on that Moore's Law and how mm-hmm. quickly things are moving along and what that means in terms of advances in performance that are very predictable and reduction in cost, which is equally predictable around these, these headsets, and the technologies, I think that that ecosystem is going to emerge a lot faster than anybody realizes. 
So what do you think the critical distinction is between a high-end virtual reality headset and a, a low-end virtual reality headset? Like I, I think actually Google Cardboard is an interesting counterexample to, uh, to the high-end headsets where you have something that, um, that just uses software and existing phone and, and $2 worth of materials to provide an experience that's still blows me away not having not used a lot of headsets it's it's kind of like you can imagine it being appropriate for 80 percent of uses not serious gaming yeah perhaps, i think not i think industrial i think google cardboard is good for 80 percent of new experiences and an introduction to the technology but i don't think it's at all compelling and i've got to believe that if you were to look at the statistics of people using google cardboard the average time that somebody's used it even mm-hmm. the enthusiasts is well under 30 minutes yeah. let alone longer because you have to hold it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't even come with a strap to right. put onto your head. Yeah. And the really compelling experiences are the ones where the goggles start to become very lightweight. They don't mm-hmm. take a lot of room. You don't feel them on your head. And then you have controllers like HTC Vives where you can actually see your hands moving around. You can actually move around inside the virtual reality with your feet by walking mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. a very active sort of experience. Huh. So when you start to be able to see the fidelity of your hands in the experience, and you're able to pick up and manipulate things in the environment, it makes it a very compelling and grossing experience. And what I think a lot of people don't realize about VR is that Google Glass is not a good analogy for thinking about VR. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Because Google Glass, people envisioned as being part of a physical social experience you would have, maybe go to a bar. It's more of an AR. It's an AR Yeah, AR. And although there are analogies between the two technologies, I would argue that they're very, very, very different experiences and that AR technology hurdles are far higher than they are in VR because with VR, you own the full stack, you own the experience. Mm -hmm. So when somebody has the headset on, they're in the experience, you own everything. So if the fidelity isn't perfect, you don't really notice it when it's in VR. But if you're looking Mm -hmm. at AR where maybe I'm looking at you and there's a push pin in your head and you're nodding your head right now, but the push pin doesn't move with it, Uh the illusion Uh is completely lost. But if I'm going ahead and I'm rendering something in VR, it's much easier for me to put those pieces together and to make that complete. Mm -hmm. And you can choose only to to render things that are within the capabilities of the technology. Right. And as a result, those technologies are just far, far closer to reality. So I think that's one. And then I think the other one is, and this is where the Google Glass and the AR analogies fall short is that I think the use case for VR is going to be entertainment and experiences that people have at home, Mm -hmm. whether it's in their house, their apartment, and there's social experiences, but there's social experiences within cyberspace. Mm -hmm. So the physical reality of people using VR is going to be in the evenings. Hmm. It's Mm -hmm. going to be on the weekends. It's going to be at home where people put on the headset and they go into this place and then they might be there like World of Warcraft for hours on end. And what you find with the current generation headsets is a lot of the queasiness and, and nausea and problems that you have, those are gone now. And in fact, a lot of people that go in now, what they find is that it can be such an intense experience that the reason they want to take the headset off is because it almost feels too real. Huh. Mm-hmm. So they're in kind of an uncanny valley place of it. A very uncanny valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those are solvable problems. But yeah. Then going in and having a social experience within VR, I think that's what you're going mm-hmm. to increasingly see. Yeah. I think this idea of a new, a new environment for computing, for a, a, you know, a new context for computing is really interesting. And it reminds me now of, of you know, what people said in the early days of the iPad. A friend of mine, my first friend who got an iPad was telling me about it. And I was like, oh, so you're going to use it to read on the, 
subway i guess or at work or something. He's like, no 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 it's just going to be in my living room all the time i was like you're crazy you the have best, a you have a laptop in your living room part you... about the ipad announcement keynote was when he just he like showed he's like this is the ipad here's what it is and now i'm going to do a demo of the ipad and then there was like an armchair on the stage and steve <laughs> Jobs just like sat and read the newspaper on the ipad for like a couple right. of minutes and like everyone was like what he's just sitting there reading the ipad but then it was clear that it's like that's the demo because it's just a, a right, new thing right, that we right. didn't have before well to a certain extent though i mean the reason that i mean the ipad's been tremendously successful yeah. but it's also leveled off mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it isn't getting much better right right it's, right. it's there i mean yeah by definition, a quote retina display mm-hmm. is the resolution of as what your good eyes as can get, eyes, yeah. as mm-hmm. good as you can get, and it's making existing behaviors easier. Whether mm-hmm. it's watching TV, whether it's doing email, whether it's browsing the web. But what is so different about virtual reality is it's an all new experience, and content creators have only started to scratch the surface. And I've started to see some compelling demos that are beyond anything you hear about with Sundance and other places mm-hmm. where you have these interactive experiences. Think of puzzles. Think about climbing through queues. Do you or, have one of the early rifts? Uh, I have you... one of the early rifts, and I've gotten demos of uh-huh. the more recent, very recent HTC Vive and state-of-the-art Oculus mm-hmm. headsets. And in looking at that and watching how quickly that's advancing it's pretty easy to go ahead and extrapolate and think about two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, these will be a lot less expensive. They'll be a lot lighter. They'll be a lot more comfortable. And you can continue to have technology improvements in the platform that'll go for another 10, 20 years where people will want to get the next generation every year or two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, And also you take a look at Apple entering into this space. They really don't enter into markets unless they see it as largely a sure thing and a mass market phenomenon. And I feel that that is a really strong validation of the space. What is Apple thought to be doing in the space? Well, I don't have any specific details other than what I've read in the press and, and rumors around I've it. I've heard that they're it, like talking about it or something. Like, yeah. Well, I think there are hundreds of people working on it yeah. right now is what I've read. So mm-hmm. Interesting. I think and Tim, I think Tim been, Cook said, we think it's cool, which, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, they don't say that lightly. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they, they say a lot of things, uh, you know, in, deep inside the company. I'm sure they're like, mm, you know, yeah. people working on, uh, on a lot of conceptual projects, but they're so disciplined about what comes out of Tim Cook's mouth if, yeah. Yeah, if he so, says it's cool. So, so you had asked about a couple of things that yeah. were interesting. And VR, I think, is one that's particularly compelling. The other one that I think is particularly compelling right now is the whole field of robotics. Hmm. And this is the idea of devices that can autonomously navigate through the world. And people don't talk about robotics as much. They talk about autonomous vehicles. They talk Hmm. about flying drones. But both of those are really subsets of robotics. It's this wave that's coming right now. And in contrast to VR, where you have a pretty clear march of Moore's Law, where you can see things cutting in half in price and doubling in performance every 12 to 18 months. In robotics, you have multiple waves coming together, each of which which is moving at the speed of Moore's Law. So when you think about actuators, you think about memory, computation, wireless bandwidth, machine vision, those algorithms, et cetera. I'd argue that the overall effectiveness of a robot, however you measure that, is actually advancing far faster than Moore's Law. Hmm. So the overall capability that you might see in a given general purpose, so to speak, warehouse robot or autonomous robot that can navigate it's actually advancing far faster than Moore's Law. And that's what I think a lot of people don't fully realize about the robotics wave right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
is an exponential version of Moore's law because there are a bunch of different Moore's laws coming together. They're coming together and they oh. act in concert with each other. And yeah. I don't know what the right metric is for that, but what it does mean is what you can do with a robot is advancing very, very quickly. Yeah. The thing that's striking me is how much more software you can load onto a robot because yeah. the, the embedded systems are just getting so much more capable, right? You've got mm -hmm. these phenomenally fast mobile phone processors that barely use any energy. You've got other, yeah, you know, GPUs, GPUs yeah, that can run stuff like TensorFlow on them directly. Well, that's going to the... be really important. I mean, especially for application, you know, the, the what we think of when we think of the future with robots involves a lot of like autonomous navigation and things that heretofore very difficult problems. Um, mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the approaches with like neural networks and stuff like that, which uses massively parallel things like GPUs is, is going to be a key to, to figuring that stuff out. And one of the things you had mentioned, you had mentioned Fetch Robotics, we're investors in Fetch. What they do is they're building robots for warehouse automation and manufacturing logistics. Mm -hmm. And they have one of their robots is a very simple robot that's used to move things around warehouses. It's called Freight, and it's about the equivalent of having somebody working for about three bucks an hour. Wow. And they're finding that a lot of people are really interested in it because they would like to be able to retrofit their existing warehouse and just have things moved around those warehouses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the technologies have just gotten to a point where you can build a simple robot that's relatively inexpensive. Because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know that it's going to be able to get everywhere, that you're not going to have problems with getting around a, yeah. a human-centric warehouse. Everywhere. It can recognize changes in the environment. It can come in very quickly and actually map the environment. So it's very user-friendly and easy to implement. It's very different than the world of Kiva, mm -hmm. which was, as you know, acquired several years ago by Amazon, where they move shelves around, but you couldn't have people in that space. Now the technologies are at a place where you can build something that's equivalent of a, a robotic cart yeah. just to move things mm -hmm. around compliant. in an existing warehouse. It extends the, the, the idea of the compliant robot, right? The, the robot that can exist in the same space as a human. And now are, this is happening. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, something that... Um, that, that you can see if you look back a couple of decades. I think of this in terms of driverless cars, but Kiva represents this as well. The, the Kiva system, as I understand it, involves putting QR code stickers on the floor, right? And the, the robot Fiducials, rules over them. right. Yeah. Um, that was, if you, if you look at like Discovery Channel specials from the mid-90s about the future of driverless cars, that was how people imagined driverless cars would work too. You put these transponders down the center line of a roadway. The cars are talking to each other over some sort of wireless thing and and they're all controlled by a dispatcher and you know the traffic lights are are broadcasting to them as well over radio and now you look at what a driverless car looks like and and I think the fundamental form that driverless cars will eventually be commercialized in is that they interact with the the world around them just like we do they perceive obstacles they use machine vision to read markings off the roadways they use machine vision to interpret traffic lights it's a much less rigid approach and it and it's and well, it's, it's mimicking more what we yeah. do right yeah exactly it's it's mimicking more how humans actually do things mm -hmm. and whether it's moving down the road it's it's starting to think about some of the same thought processes or techniques that people would use so going back to the warehouse example if you were to imagine not just moving things around a warehouse but grabbing things off the shelf mm -hmm. you might have a box of cereal you're going to grab or a box of tissues or maybe some nuts and bolts as a human you go up and you look at it you remember what it was like when you grabbed that box of cereal before there was a time when you learned it the first time mm -hmm. but because you have all this memory on board and you were saying dave you know you were saying you could actually load all this software on you could have it come up take a look at what's on the shelf say oh 
it's a box of cereal. So I should use this type of grasping routine. Mm -hmm. So you can actually go through and build up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of effectively subroutines for, okay, it's full. I'm going to grab the top of the box of cereal with my little end effector, my finger, basically, Mm -hmm. pull it forward. And then as it falls into my hand, I lightly grab it. Uh We all know that's how you grab a box of cereal off a supermarket shelf. We learned it at some point, but now we know, and you can use those same routines. So you can use similar techniques with robotics. In the past, people couldn't do that. They felt that they had to generalize how the AI would work Mm -hmm. because they didn't have the room to put in all the processing power to think through like, okay, what are the 500 different ways that I could grasp something. Yeah. Now I can do that and I can be more specific and almost brute force with the approach. And once any robot does it, every robot in the system knows it, right? That's they're right. All we'll remember how to do it. Yeah. Which is actually a pretty crazy thing to think about. That means that every deployed robot in such a system is improving the capability of every other robot in that connected system. Shared, shared memory. So the think, Borg. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So we've seen, you know, the the overall stats on on big VC investments looking pretty stagnant right now um, across the market. What's going on, and um, you know, do you see do you see hardware as as a threatened area at all? Well, I think a couple of things are going on. There's this question of is there a VC pullback right now? I think a lot of what you see in the current environment has to do with later stage companies and later stage valuations. So some of these large rounds that have gone into the so called unicorns, there's been a real pullback in that. At the same time, if you take a look at the business inputs, whether you're talking about residential real estate, whether you're talking about commercial real estate, salaries, competition for talent to come into these companies is as robust as it's ever been. And that indicates to me that there's still capital going into these companies. There's still the real flow of opportunities available to entrepreneurs to do these things. So I think a lot of what you see, the pullback is actually a lot of the later stage in reaction to what's going on in the, the, the public markets that you have right now. As far as what does it mean for hardware, I do think that for hardware companies where those later stage investments are particularly important. So it doesn't take too much to get the company to market. But when you really start to get into your go-to-market, you're spending money on inventory, production builds, demand generation. Those rounds are a bit more difficult to Mm -hmm. raise, and I think will be more difficult to raise because a lot of the later stage investors are responding to what they're seeing with the decline in GoPro and some of the other public hardware stocks right now. And I think also a recognition that there may be limits to Apple's growth over time and the pullback that you've seen in Apple shares as well, Mm -hmm. maybe quelling people's enthusiasm a bit. Interesting, but it's just that the hockey stick is is leaning out more to the right rather than quite going straight up on these valuations. I, I think that's right. I think people are reaching a little further for the puck. And as a result, the stick isn't as steep as it would be if it was in closer. That was a really good extended metaphor. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the geometry of that yeah, worked the really elegantly. Reaching for yeah. the VC, puck. we spend a lot of time thinking about hockey sticks and how yeah. they work. Yeah. <laughs> what is, it is an interesting question, though. But I think going forward, the most interesting innovative hardware companies will always find capital. And I think that the press likes to overblow just how strong or how shallow venture capital investment is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's become much more of a predictable institution than it's been in the past. So I think capital is always available for exciting, innovative companies, whether they're in hardware or other areas. Excellent. So we go now to our segment called Click Spiral, which is where uh, each of us on the show talks about a thing that's completely absorbed our attention recently. 
Um, Initially, we did these things about stuff that's on the internet, and then we realized that the internet is an analogy for life. We all get into click spiral type things elsewhere in the physical world, um, so it can go in that way too. And if you, the listener, have a click spiral that you'd like to uh, cause David and me to lose some portion of our lives to, you can send it to hardware at O'Reilly.com, along with any remarks about how much of your life you've lost to our previous click spirals. So let's begin with David. What's your click spiral this week? This week... I have been into uh, AmazingMagnets.com. Um, have you? Are you guys in magnet enthusiasts? Uh, I'm a fan of magnets. I like magnets. Magnets yeah. are really great. Um, I enjoy magnets. I think all the time I spent with magnets was with Lego sets. Yeah, 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 exactly. Connecting trains. Connecting trains together, yeah. Well, you know, often when you go to like the hobby or your craft toy store or something, you can buy like three magnets and it's really expensive because it's kind of a gift. Um, but there are places online you can go where they're like magnet suppliers. AmazingMagnets.com is one of these magnet suppliers. And so you can go and they have all the different shapes of magnets, various different strengths, um, and you can buy them in bulk and at very reasonable rates. And you can have all the magnets that you want. I recently realized they're, they're selling this new thing called polymagnets, which is some new manufacturing process which allows them to pattern the magnetic patterns into the like the object and so, and so you can end up with, with magnets that like repel as they get close to each other. But then once you get within a certain distance, they snap together. Or there's, oh, that's also, like, crazy. there's also like rotational symmetry things that you can do as well. Cause they're like actually controlling the way that the different internal surfaces of the, of the piece are magnetized. There's, there are a lot of cool, um, work holding tools that I've seen for this. Like on, you can use them on mills where it's a, uh, a magnetic block, you know, that holds a piece of steel while you machine it. And it has a dial or what looks like a dial. It's mm. a switch and it, and it rotates the magnet, the permanent magnet that's inside this thing off to the side. And when it, when it goes off axis, it ceases to bind the, the work to the top of it. So these things are extraordinary. You, you like hold them near a big metal cabinet and turn this dial and the thing like flies out of your hand and sticks itself to the metal cabinet. I wonder how much of this is new and how much of it is well-known magnet there's some some magnet guy screaming at us at yeah. the, over the over the radio right i think now. it's Got been it. around for a long time yeah. i think it's one of the <laughs> well, original think, technologies think, yeah. the compass needle right 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 exactly it's marco polo is screaming at us over the radio right now so <laughs> exactly so yeah amazingmagnets.com is really great i got into it uh, during the whole buckyballs falling out i don't know if you guys remember that there no. was this this toy called buckyballs which was just like eighth inch diameter sphere magnets coated in like a nicely colored oh, enamel. Yeah. It was a thing that you could like put on your office door if you wanted like, to be like it's, a friendly it's person. It's the best fidget tool ever. Just tiny, just a whole bunch of little sphere magnets. Um, but then they got put out of business by some like regulatory thing. Um, turns out magnets are not good to have around children because if you eat them, it's really bad for you because they can like find each other inside of your system and like pinch your, pinch your insides which is not a thing that you want. So It is um, horrifying. Yeah. yeah, pinched insides. And so um, you can go on amazingmagnets.com, though, and since you can't buy buckyballs anymore, just buy sphere magnets from them, and they <laughs> actually cost less. All right, so, John, what's yours? What's your click spiral this week? Well, as you and our listeners are probably aware, it's been a bad drought in California for several years now, and the iconic image of this drought is the photograph of, you know, any of California's big reservoirs. They end up with these humongous bathtub rings sort of where the the surface of the lake has you know sunk down a couple hundred feet in some cases uh, as these reservoirs have emptied out so this is a click spiral that's actually been spiraling for me for several months now at intervals but last fall when they started to talk about this being an el nino winter with a lot of rain i got this idea that it would be really fun to watch these reservoirs refill and so i've gone um 
I found a handful of California Department of Transportation highway webcams that happen to capture these reservoirs in the background. And I've set up a script to uh, harvest an image from the webcam every hour or so during daylight hours. Whoa. And I've, I've started to go back and, and look at these. Eventually, I'd like to make an animated GIF and, um, of, the, of the thing refilling over the course of the winter. And um, I'm sure that there's some sort of subreddit that's dedicated to like very satisfying animated GIFs of water and that yeah. it would be explosively popular there. I'll put these images in the, um, in the show notes that accompany this podcast, which you can find at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. But in the meantime, I'm going to show them to uh, Rob and David and uh, so that they can comment on them. We'll comment on our, describe our reactions. So this is a photograph taken in mid-November, and this is a photograph taken yesterday in February, and you can see that this That's is- That's a huge difference already. It's, it's a huge difference. difference. Yeah, Shasta Lake, uh, surface elevation has gained um, more than 100 feet in the Still last Still has a ways to go, so. though. It does, it does, ways yeah. To go. I think the, the big refill is going to happen a bit later this spring when the snow starts to melt in the mountains. But this is a lot that's just from that, that crazy rain that we've, that we've been having. So you're, how long have you been collecting these data? Since uh, mid-November. And you have hourly resolution across many different webcams on that? That's pretty cool. Yeah, here's a graph of the surface level, actually. So this, this image is thought to illustrate the severity of the recent drought. But in fact, these reservoirs are designed to empty out over the summer and then refill during the winter rains and the spring snowmelt. So you have this sinusoidal pattern, and I'll link to this graph as well. Fortunately, in the, the sinusoid's back. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. For a while, it wasn't as sinusoidal as it should have been. Um, it's just down. It's right, just, right. It was just uh, um, DC. A, an yeah. easier function to graph, mm -hmm. flat line. So uh, you can see from this that, that the, the reservoir most recently bottomed out around early December, uh, which is typical, and that, and that since then it's gone from an elevation of, of about 900 feet to an elevation of, um, of close to 1,000 feet. So Where'd you get the idea for this GIF? Every time it started to rain, I would think to myself, oh man, I bet, that, I bet the reservoirs are filling up from this. It's a very satisfying thought, right? So I figured I would try to illustrate it. Plus, there's a deeper click spiral at work here, which is that the Central Valley Project, which is the giant irrigation works for, for all of Central California, are fascinating. Do you guys know how this works? No. Okay, click spiral B. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project, the, the former built in the 30s to the 50s and the latter built in the, in the 60s and 70s, take water from the northern end of California where it's very rainy and send it to the southern end of California where it's not so rainy, but the weather is great for growing lettuce and, and strawberries and so on. And the way it does it is it, it takes water from, the, um, from around the headwaters of the Sacramento River up by Mount Shasta, and including some rivers that don't drain into the Central Valley, like the Trinity River, and it siphons water across a mountain range, pumps all of this water into the headwaters of the Sacramento River, which augments the Sacramento River. So even, even during drought conditions, the Sacramento River is just like full of water. And then when the Sacramento River is about to reach San Francisco Bay, there are these enormous pumping stations that suck the water back out of the river before it can go out and send it um, down, down state in the California aqueduct. And this, the, the pumping plants that keep this system supplied are the largest single user of electricity in the state. Mm. They're absolutely massive, um, but it's, it's, a, it's an enormous process to, to move this water down and a really fun thing to, to read about. Rob, what's your click spiral? So I've been traveling a lot over the last couple of months and recently went to go visit contract manufacturers in China and flying into the Hong Kong airport, 
was interested in what the old Hong Kong airport looked like and Googled the old Kai Tak uh-huh. airport. And there are a lot of plane landing videos there that are fascinating to watch. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, it's pretty amazing. The, the approach that they used to have, you have the iconic shot where you would see the skyscrapers and the planes landing below the level of the skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people didn't remember about this approach is you used to fly directly at this thing called the checkerboard and you'd come in at a specific approach and then you'd have to bank about 30 degrees to the right mm-hmm. at the last minute, uh, maybe about 500 feet off the ground. You'd have these huge 747s and big Airbuses doing these and they might be doing it in rainy conditions, crazy conditions because there was only a single runway at this airport. So it's pretty fascinating. Been like the busiest airport with a oh. single runway, right? It, it, it was one of those. It was uh, considered an incredibly dangerous airport. <laughs> and I think part of the challenge is it's a mountainous area for anybody that's been to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. You have this crazy right turn that you take. You have skyscrapers. And because you have a single runway, you're doing crosswind run landings all the time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. part of the click spiral here is you'd go in and you'd look at this and you'd see these planes that look like they were flying almost sideways because of the crosswinds. You'd have them maybe... Wow. Canada at 20, 30 degrees to the oh, runway. Wow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And at the last minute, then they would straighten out the plane. Wow. So you could start to watch other videos yeah. on YouTube that come through where you see all the crosswind testing. And you see just how sideways they fly these planes and the things that they do with the landing gear, the design of the landing gear to be able to handle coming down and the wheels aren't oriented directly down the runway. Yeah, yeah. They might be slightly sideways when they actually hit the runway. So how... how- tolerant is the is the plane i mean is it one of these things where like it's it's so over designed that you can do absolutely horrifying things with it and it's and it's fine well what i've seen is that the korean airlines in general seem to push the limits of what you can do with a very large airplane at the last minute <laughs> uh this is something that obviously we saw with asiana mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. uh the the challenge they had in landing us triple seven at san francisco a few years ago there's a great video that you can Google. It's just Korean Airlines, Kaitak, and you will see them landing, just this crazy landing of a big 747 mm-hmm. was taken from the hill where the checkerboard is, the thing that they would line up for. And you'd look down and you'd see the plane doing just some crazy stuff, like the left wing almost hitting the ground. I can't even begin to imagine what it would have been like to be a passenger on the plane on this landing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's insane. I assume you've seen the video from Boeing from the... Uh development of the triple seven during the 90s where they did a critical sort of airframe test oh yeah to, they to do these the it's, it's a static wing tests. yeah so yeah. what they'll do is they'll bend it up and it'll bend far further than you've ever seen on a commercial flight yeah 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 practically so that the so that the the tips of the wings are, are almost perpendicular to the ground it's pretty crazy how far they can go even yeah. with composite structures yeah 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 on one hand it's uh and ter- you can find those on youtube too it's amazing yeah. wow, what you yeah. can find on youtube if you just google different <laughs> things around planes yeah totally totally a lot of like uh, trade stuff that you wouldn't think would be on there but it's incredibly deep and and in the case of that airframe test it is both terrifying and a reassurance it's terrifying yeah. to see a plane shatter the way that that plane shatters, uh, but it's also reassuring to know that how, mu- how much it has to go through. If yeah, it, if it gets to that point, then you're you're dealing with other problems. Exactly that <laughs> that like little bit of turbulence over Pittsburgh. There's a great yeah. Far Side cartoon uh-huh. where there's a guy in a plane and he's sweating, and there's a little button that he doesn't want to press, and it says "wings on, wings off." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, Gary yeah. Larson understood the mentality because. Flying scares me, scares yeah, me, yeah. troubles me deeply, even though 
I'm trained as an aerospace engineer and have a couple of mechanical engineering degrees. Yeah. What happens is... And you know the pilots are, 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 are well-trained to know how to deal with the wings-on, wings-off button. But yeah, still. Yeah, yeah. They don't still, touch that button. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Don't, they don't touch that. But what's interesting is people always get confused because actually a lot of engineers are afraid to fly. And the reason that engineers are afraid to fly is because you're trained for years in how people messed up right. yeah. in design. So you spend all this time learning from other people's mistakes, but the problem is then it becomes part of your psychology. Right. And right. you remember, oh, there was a first time they found out there was a problem. Mm-hmm. The de Havilland mm-hmm. Comet. Right. Like, huh, right. that's funny. These planes are falling out of the sky. Yeah. And yeah. they discovered fatigue failure for the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that wonders, when are they going to find the first problems with the 787 other than the battery issue? Or when are they going to find the first problems with the A380? Or when are they going to find the first problems with planes that have these composite structures that yeah. haven't been used mm-hmm. in commercial jetliners that are designed for decades and decades of experience. Yeah. And then think of mm-hmm. the public relations fallout when an entirely new category of airline failures uh, happens as a result. Now, it's of probably going to be just fine. Yeah. But as an engineer, this is what yeah. goes through your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Will yeah. I be the first? Try to do something new. Yeah, exactly. Will I be right. the first? Right. Start right. imagining all the way. Don't want to be the yeah. first. <laughs> right. 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 So that's, that's been a click spiral. If any of you have click spirals that you'd like to send in, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com and uh, David and I will waste some time on them and then uh, pass them along to the listeners. So Rob, if people want to find you online, uh, where do they look? A great place to go is on Twitter, at Rob Conneybeer. That's C-O-N-E-Y-B-E-E-R, like a keg of beer. And you can also go to 280.vc. That's 280.vc. Excellent. Rob Conneybeer, thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks, Great. Rob. Thanks for having me, guys. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>